Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 103, From Without. It really cannot be understated just what a disappointment it was for the Soviets that their revolution wasn't exported to the rest of Europe. I know I've talked about it a lot, but the Bolsheviks really were ready to smash capitalism then and there in the aftermath of the Russian Civil War. And that expectation was not unreasonable. World War I gets overshadowed by its showier sequel, but at the time, there hadn't been anything like it. And I don't mean that in a good way. It was perceived as a failure, not just on the part of individual people, but on entire ways of life. If the way people had been living up to that point brought them to that kind of ruin, of what use was that way of life? And at that moment, the revolution in Russia was the clearest alternative to those who rejected attempting to revert to already vanished pre-war status quo once the fighting had died down. The problem was, as always, properly marshalling these sentiments into action powerful enough to bring down the Western capitalist system. Even though that system had received body blows to many of its most critical parts, the heartlands of the UK and US were both fully functional. There would need to be organization and cooperation if the truly international revolution hoped to stand a chance. And that's where an old idea was resurrected by the Bolsheviks, the idea of an international. For the uninitiated, the idea of the international was to provide some kind of umbrella group to all the proletariat and far-left organizations of the world. The first international had been founded back in 1864 in London, but dissolved after only 12 years, a victim of its own infighting between anarchists and everyone else. A reboot was made in 1889, which enjoyed quite a bit more stability since it banned the anarchists as being incompatible with large-scale organization. Not that this newer umbrella group was free of its own infighting, which, given the fragmented nature of the left in history, that's just to be expected. And it eventually ran aground also, with this iteration's downfall revealing fault lines that listeners to this show should be all too familiar with. The issue that doomed the Second International was, broadly speaking, World War I. Traditionally, the international left was dominated by the Marxist values of international solidarity and anti-imperialism. They were elements that supposedly pervaded the thinking of the proletariat of the industrialized world. And when World War I broke out, there were many who expected the left on both sides to protest and boycott the war. Except that didn't happen. Instead, war fever gripped the left almost as strongly as the right, at least at the outset. Naturally, this meant that cooperation between the leftist groups of Europe became quite impossible, and during the war the ghost was finally given up and the Second International was effectively shuttered. The war was a disaster for the international solidarity angle of the movement, as workers weren't supposed to be going out to kill other workers on behalf of management. But with overwhelming support, they were doing just that. A key bit of propaganda and identity building before the war dissolved almost instantly. And as the war dragged on, the left opened themselves to accusations of selling out to the bourgeois leadership of their respective countries. To be sure, they justified it in different ways. For example, in Germany, the left portrayed the struggle as simply a defensive war. Uh, somehow. Once the Germans had successfully invaded France and Russia, the idea went a peace without annexations would be implemented and all the grudges in Europe would be buried. 
This was borderline childish thinking, but people on both sides really did believe they were under attack by foreigners, and that there would be no conquests once their side had won. As time went on, though, this was borne out less and less, something that the ordinary masses were not blind to. And to continue with the German example, the Treaty of brest clearly demonstrated late in the war that, yes, in fact, this was very much a war of conquest. And that was the cause the common people had been ultimately dying and fighting for. They were less than impressed, to say the least. And coupled with deteriorating material conditions at home, they began to strike and protest the ongoing conflict. Except that the old socialist leadership wasn't there to lead them. As you'll remember from episodes 23 through 26, the leadership of the German SPD did everything in its power to keep social tensions from bubbling over during the war, and when that failed, did everything they could to clamp down on revolution. The SPD was ostensibly social democratic, although, as was the style at the time, they encompassed virtually every element of the far left, as there really wasn't anywhere else to go. Which finally brings us to the crux of this episode. The madness of World War I created a crisis of confidence not just in the establishment, but in the leadership of the traditional left as well. The rank and file of the proletariat got more aggressive in their demands, and the younger party members were there with them. They wanted the Great War to be over. And so, the European left split, with the portion that saw revolution as the only antidote to a broken world growing distant from the social democrats who opted to continue working within the old systems, hoping to reform them from within. And now I finally also now get to loop this back around to the Soviets and why these developments were important to them. Simply put, their success was an inspiration. It was probably a plus that not a lot of news got out about all the chaos happening in Russia during the Civil War, so people got to let their imaginations of a new society being built run wild. Whatever the expectations of those on the outside struggling to look in, the Bolsheviks proved that a revolution promising communism was actually viable. And they did it in backwards Russia. Who knew what was possible in the areas of Europe deemed fit for revolution within the bounds of classical Marxism? And the Bolsheviks weren't about to let the opportunity go either. If they were to be the example, they would also be happy to lend a guiding hand as well. After all, they had actually done the deed already. And to do that, they would revive the idea of an international, one that this time had a clear center. On March 2nd, 1919, the first Congress of the Third International opened in Moscow, although it would be more commonly called the Communist International, or even more commonly still, the Comintern. I'm going to hold up right here and explain just why this is important for our purposes. As the Soviet Union was a pariah state isolated from well, most everywhere else, its global reach was limited. The Comintern offered a mechanism to not just give communists abroad a chance to get support and a place to coordinate, but also gave the Soviets an outlet into other countries. The loyalties of true communists were always to the movement, to the revolution, which meant that the Soviet Union suddenly had pools of foreign agents that could act on its behalf. Now, before you start conjuring visions of a communist conspiracy across the entire globe, this reach was far, far more modest. And it didn't help that almost all the prospective communists who might aid the Soviet cause in their home countries were already on the radar of the security services of those home countries. But hey, it was something at a time when the Soviet Union had a lot of nothing in terms of influence outside its borders. 
As you might imagine, the Comintern would not be like the internationals of old. This would be a specifically communist grouping, meant to organize the world's proletariat towards revolution. The typically aimless nature of the preceding internationals would be replaced with a steely focus meant to be enacted with the utmost of haste. It didn't hurt that in March 1919, much of Europe was in total disarray, with many nations only having a semblance of government. The time seemed ripe for dramatic action. Another key difference was in how it was going to be managed. It wasn't explicitly stated, but it was clear that the Communist Party of Russia and eventually the Soviet Union would be the driving force in this new movement. One important thing, it wasn't initially supposed to be that way. Even Lenin recognized that the vast populations and economies of Europe couldn't be directly administered from Moscow. There would need to be other Soviet governments that could manage themselves, and had they actually, you know, come into existence, they would have had proportional power in the common turn. Which is also why that organization's evolution is interesting. It was supposed to eventually be a far more independent and influential body than it wound up being. Which, as a little aside, might also have been why Stalin was far more gung-ho about building socialism in one nation from an early point. Having strong international partners would have threatened his primacy in global communism. But for all the ideals of international solidarity, going by the attendance of the First Congress, the leadership practically defaulted to the Russians. Which made sense. Moscow in March 1919 was under threat of white attack, and Red Russia in general was still under international siege. What I'm getting at is this wasn't a huge Congress. But that's not inherently a bad portent. Both the Russian and Chinese Communist parties individually had terrible First Congresses as well. Just, it did show that maybe the Bolsheviks had their work cut out for them. The chairman of the Comintern was Grigory Zinoviev, who served in that capacity as well as running the Communist Party in Petrograd and working on the Politburo. Both he and Lenin wanted to push for working-class uprisings immediately. While in Germany the Free Corps were making their merry circuit across the country at the time, the matter hadn't yet been settled. In Austria, the only effective government were the Socialists in Vienna— Hungary was going to see a communist government rise to power just two weeks after the Comintern's first Congress concluded. And momentum was swinging leftwards in Italy, as it was the beginning of the start of its red two years. The situation was fluid all through the rest of Central Europe. All in all, it looked like the time to strike. The big problem outside of Red Russia's own difficulties was the fact that most of the prospective members of the Comintern were still social democrat in character. A great many had been radicalized by World War I, but it wasn't enough to hit that critical mass towards support of widespread revolution. In Germany, for instance, there was that three-way split in the left with the revolutionary KPD and the leftist USPD splitting off from the centrist SPD. The SPD was clearly useless to advance the Comintern's cause and didn't want anything to do with it anyway. The KPD was all on board, but it was too small a group to do much more than agitate, especially after the Free Corps got through with them. It was groups like the USPD, ones that had mass support and had broken away from their parent party to push harder for societal change that the Comintern wanted to bring on board. But these groups also fell just short of what Lenin needed. They still wanted to work within their parent country's political system to reform it from within, and their fiery rhetoric was not matched by their actions on the ground. And because circumstances within Russia prevented Moscow from being more encouraging, the moment of early 1919 slipped by them. 
So in addition to causing mayhem and human misery on a vast scale, the Russian Civil War also served to prevent the Bolsheviks from acting on their dream of advancing the Red Tide westwards. The window closed over the course of the year, Central Europe stabilized, and the socialist-slash-communist governments and organizations gradually were suppressed. There was one last big opportunity around the time of the Comintern's Second Congress in July 1920, though. At that time, Russia was invading Poland with an eye towards advancing on Berlin. In Germany, the SPD government had survived the Kapusch, but only just. To ensure that all the international groups were on the same page in the years to come, namely his, Lenin put forward a list of 21 conditions during the Congress. And while it crossed my mind that I could really pad out my episode length by just reading out the 21 conditions, I am going to spare you. The gist of them was that to be full members of the Comintern, your group would have to abide by a certain set of standards. Namely, groups had to be committed communists, demonstrably committed communists. Pushing leaflets wouldn't do. You had to put in the organizing and agitation work. Political opportunists, basically those that cloaked themselves in communist rhetoric but then turned around and steered their party towards a centrist course, were to be removed. And yes, there was a list of names given as examples. Another big condition was the call to abandon the tactics of reformism. That meant the idea of getting elected and reforming the system from within was to be abandoned. Not to say that communist parties shouldn't stand for elections in general, Plenty of damage to the bourgeois could be done within the halls of power. The emphasis, though, was to prepare for revolution among the masses. Winning elections was superfluous compared to the real mechanism of attaining the communist dream. One last condition I want to touch on was the requirement that each affiliated party should obey the directions issued by the Comintern as a whole. This would effectively mean Moscow would be setting the communist agenda, although this was another instance where originally it was assumed that non-Bolshevik communist parties would be well-represented and ergo would have far greater influence over the discourse. As events transpired, this became less and less true and the Comintern became a Soviet show. And from the start, this condition did not go over well with a lot of the centrist leadership among the European socialists, as this effectively subsumed each of their groups to the will of the Comintern. The majority of the international left, caught between the centrism where they had drifted away from and the militancy of what beckoned them into the future, split between the two extremes. While many retreated into social democracy and working within the bourgeois political systems of their home countries, hundreds of thousands of the most active on the far left went with the new communist parties. Soon, members of the Comintern could be counted as significant political players in most every industrialized state in Europe. The big exception was in the UK, where the communists there numbered only in the few thousand, and while the far left of the Labour Party certainly sympathized with them, they were never able to draw significant support away from that party. Despite the success of actually getting established, the problem continued to be just how committed all these groups were to an actual revolution. It was easy to talk about, but when push came to shove, many of these groups were terribly untested which really speaks to how notable the Russian and Chinese communist parties were for having actually braved the fire of going through with it. And just as an aside, it wasn't just in Europe that the Comintern saw opportunity. The rest of the world beckoned for revolution as well. Always remember, this was an age where almost all of Africa and much of Asia was directly administered by colonial empires. The snag was, of course, that the colonies were unindustrialized, and deliberately so, they were resource extraction units with only scanty political systems built up. 
Remember my lengthy overview of the colonial empires. Out of all of them, the most politically and economically developed was India, and even then, mostly in just in certain regions. Vietnam as well, and also to a lesser extent. The idea became to support nationalist revolutions, which would usher in bourgeois rule, which in turn would create the conditions of a proletarian revolution. Basically, it was the China plan that you'll remember from the previous miniseries. Care would be taken not to dress these movements up as communist, but collaboration would be encouraged nevertheless. Progress was slow, but it bore some fruit here and there. Results in China would prove to be a mixed bag during the 20s, which, yeah, that's an understatement, but it definitely began to be decoupled from the colonial snares it had found itself in. Uh, members of the Indian National Congress would never go so far as to ally with the common turn, but many of its members enjoyed friendly relations with the Soviets. Many Africans who had journeyed to the metropoles in Europe were exposed to communist thinking and later helped agitate back home, and the same could be said for the early Vietnamese communists. Many in Turkey and Iran also looked towards the Soviets with an eye, if not towards true friendship, then at least relationships of convenience to try and counterbalance exploitive Western influences. Overall, the first two years of the common turn were spent steadily building up support for revolutionary action, and it found a receptive audience. Unfortunately, this was also going to lead to serious setbacks, as with that increased mass support came expectations that something was actually going to be done with it and the interwar period was going to prove to be a rough time for international communism in general. The Russo-Polish War of 1920 did not go well, and the march of communism was firmly checked in the West. There would be no march on Berlin. The chaos that had followed the end of World War I had also begun to recede by then as well, as the forces of conservatism found their footing. The early 20s would wind up being disasters for the Comintern, and would leave it dominated by the Soviets playing host to stunted communist parties from elsewhere. In September 1920, waves of strikes spread across Italy, encouraged by the Italian Socialist Party, or the PSI for short, which resulted in factory takeovers by the workers. These strikes spread nationwide, as I described way back in episode 7. It appeared for a moment that these factory Soviets, defended by Italian Red Guards on the Russian model, would take the next step and seize power. But then the PSI leadership declined taking that next step. On the precipice of revolution, they got cold feet. Abandoned by both party and the trade union leadership, the workers there began handing the factories back. Lenin, Zinoviev, and Bukharin all tried to cajole the PSI leadership to take active measures to stop the disaster already underway. Their take was that the failure of the factory seizures was going to lead to disenchantment and a death spiral of enthusiasm. So the PSI had to change the conversation by declaring that factory takeovers weren't enough. The proletariat had to go for the whole thing. The Italians, though, didn't go for it and decided to sit back and watch their entire movement fall apart. Those who did want to take action forcibly split off into the Italian Communist Party, while the fearful bourgeois, distrustful of a government that had failed to come to their defense, fell back on the new fascist party to counterattack. In a year's time, Mussolini was in power, and what had been one of the largest socialist groups in Europe was well on its way to being dismantled. If the PSI fell apart on account of ignoring common turn advice on taking action, the KPD in Germany was nearly destroyed as a result of going along with the advice they were getting. Partly, this could be blamed on internal conditions within Russia at the time. 
Early 1921 was a moment of hunger and revolt in the countryside, with the Kronstadt Rebellion coming nearer. Looking for a way to change momentum in favor of the communists, Zinoviev had been tossing around the idea of organizing the KPD into launching an armed insurrection. The KPD was receptive to the idea, as its more moderate leadership at the time, foremost among them a man named Paul Levi, had resigned from their positions. Levi had gotten himself into a feud with some other members of the Comintern, specifically a Hungarian named Maciasz Rakoji. Rakoji is famous for being the guy that Stalin would put in charge of Hungary after World War II, but in the 20s, he was just another communist exile from his home country. They got into it over whether the Comintern policy of encouraging uprisings was correct or not, with Levi very much preferring long-term power building over rash action. Rokoji eventually tattled on Levi to the KPD, and the party rebuked him, causing his and others' resignations. The KPD's leadership swung harder left, and Zinoviev sent in another Hungarian, Bela Kun, to begin feeling out what kind of uprising they wanted to do. You'll remember Bela Kun as the leader of communist Hungary, who had fled to Russia when that venture went pear-shaped. Well, good for him, he failed upwards, and he got himself a gig in the Comintern. Kuhn may not have had a lot of competencies, but he thought big and immediately encouraged the KPD to organize a small army to take over Germany. The result was the March Action of 1921 that went disastrously. The authorities had gotten wind of the plot, the KPD had failed to get workers on board, and Levi tried to talk everybody he could out of the whole thing. The result was a confused mess of some communists here and there in eastern Germany launching small uprisings, Nowhere with any popular support. It was a fiasco and resulted in the KPD being outlawed, the party's membership collapsing, and the imprisonment of many of their most committed members. In less than a year, two of the most promising members of the Comintern had been cut off at their knees. The March action especially discredited revolution via revolts unsupported by the masses, at least in the eyes of the Comintern leadership. 1920 and most of 1921 were just bad years in general, and a change in tactics were called for. This was mirrored already in Russia, as early 1921 saw the introduction of what would morph into the NEP. Which makes now a good time to throw out there that the NEP wasn't just taken as a surprise about-face within Russia. The communist groups that had aligned with it were also taken aback by Lenin's tactical retreat. What was hit upon during the Comintern's Third Congress during the summer of 1921 was the tactic of the United Front. What this meant was communist parties would loudly call for a broad left alliance in conjunction with organized labor to create a political alliance to act on behalf of the proletariat. This was taken for what it was, an abandonment of the policies of coercion against the moderate socialists that basically called for them to submit to the Comintern's leadership. But this wasn't a real capitulation either. The United Front strategy was intended to goad the moderate left into allowing the communists into their orbit and into more, shall we say, respectable political circles. Whereupon the communists, being louder and more aggressive at all times, would begin to dictate the narrative of leftist politics. And if the moderates protested and or kept the communists at arm's length, well, then they could be accused of being wreckers who didn't want to accept allies that wanted what they, by and large at least, also wanted. It signaled that international communism was taking a far more defensive posture in the aftermath of the past two years, and it was an acknowledgement that while the workers of Europe had been receptive to their messaging, it hadn't made them identify as communists first and foremost. A united front would open the door to maybe making communism become, you know, a little more normalized. 
The main problem came from the international parties actually being expected to carry through on the new strategy. Most all of them had burned a lot of bridges with the moderates on the left in their home countries in the past couple years, and turning back to them was a fraught prospect. Moreover, there was a real fear among the Comintern members that if they moderated their tactics, then the revolutionary fire that drove them would dwindle down into nothing. They hadn't become communists to play influence games with the incrementalist social democrats they had just broken away from. They wanted action, and that wasn't it. The Congress ultimately settled on going forward with the United Front strategy, but only after a lot of grumbling. And just because the Comintern leadership said a thing didn't mean its member parties began obeying it immediately, as the policy was never implemented in places like Italy and France. The case of Italy was especially tragic as the fascists were really starting to come into their own in the summer of 1921, and as the squadra snowball really began to accumulate. Germany was an odd exception as the KPD, having nearly been ruined after the March action, took the opportunity of those waves of right-wing political assassinations I brought up back in episode 27 to demand the SPD actually do something about it. The assassinations, culminating in June 1922 with the murder of the German foreign minister by right-wing paramilitaries, so poisoned the national mood of the nation against the right, however briefly, that the KPD was able to leverage their anti-reactionary bona fides into being a legitimate party again. They also started organizing the Red Hundreds, armed bands of workers, which were ostensibly for self-defense, which, given the climate of Germany in those days, was totally understandable, but Zinovia, Bukharin, and the rest of the Comintern leadership made a mental note of them for future reference. Which was unfortunate, as the zinovia bukharin duo within the Comintern became all the stronger after Lenin suffered his series of strokes, and Trotsky was forced on the defensive internally thanks to the machinations of Stalin. And not that the pair liked each other. In fact, they would in just a couple of years be at each other's throats. But they both favored aggressive action, even as Lenin and Trotsky had advocated a more measured course going into the future. Almost as fast as the Comintern had managed to moderate its guidance, the group turned towards uprisings once again. And the pair's influence directly led to the destruction of the Bulgarian Communist Party in 1923. When the ruling Agrarian National Union was toppled in June of that year by the military and underground paramilitaries, the Bulgarian communists stood aside. Admittedly, the leader of the ANU had backstabbed them previously and, in any case, supported a bourgeois conception of the peasantry based on private property ownership. They were simply not worth dying over. Zinoviev and Bukharin didn't see things that way. They urged the Bulgarian communists to enter into United Front with the ANU, which was far too late as that party had already been purged. The Bulgarians decided to obey the orders coming from Moscow and suicidally launched an uprising in late September. It was destroyed instantly, and another long-standing communist party was ruined. This was followed up by another of Zinoviev's schemes in 1924, this time in Estonia. Over the course of that year, the Soviets started sending aid to the communists there to prepare for an uprising. The problem was that the party there was banned on account of the authorities not being totally blind to the fact they had a quasi-hostile power sitting right across its border. The Estonian government caught wind of the plotting and set about infiltrating the Estonian communists. This paid off in November 1924, when 150 Estonians were arrested, with the vast majority getting harsh sentences for either conspiring against the nation or at the very least participating in a banned organization. Moscow ordered the coup to proceed anyway, despite the setback. On December 1st, 1924, a few hundred men terrorized Tallinn for most of the morning, 
But before noon, they had been put down. In the ensuing months, 2,000 would be arrested. Yet another shameful notch for the Comintern's futile activities. But the biggest heartbreak in the mid-20s for the Comintern was once again in Germany. KPD had rebuilt their fortunes by denouncing right-wing extremism just in time for the mother of all monetary crises in 1923. The tale of France's Ruhr adventure and Germany's ensuing hyperinflation is one I've covered twice already, so I'll be skipping it here. But the KPD was very much in the thick of worker agitation, turning the economic collapse of Germany during that year into a rallying cry against capitalism, and the Comintern leadership were egging them on to go further. This might seem like an odd fixation. Germany had been the site of two separate disasters for the communists, and its government, despite being as bourgeois as any other, was far more willing to work with the Soviet Union than any other major power. Germany, though, was still that great hope of the Soviet and ergo common turn leadership. It was big and industrialized, and its centrality in Europe made it seem like if that were the domino to fall, then all the others could follow with it it would change the course of the world revolution overnight. For Zinavia personally, he was fixated on it because he believed that a common turn success in Germany would enhance his own position in the Soviet Union. Being head of the common turn was only as prestigious as its member components, so a powerful KPD would be a boon to him, and maybe even redeem him for his obstruction during the October Revolution, which people constantly threw in his face. By September, simultaneous to the Bulgarian debacle, Zinoviev was frantically cooking up plans and discussing the feasibility of a KPD uprising. Trotsky and he would discuss the chances of an uprising success with the General Kamenev late into their evenings, a remarkable sign to how excited they were over the venture, because Zinoviev and Trotsky absolutely despised each other. The economic collapse of Germany due to its hyperinflation was such that even more cautious leaders like Stalin became convinced that this was going to be the big one. Turned out, though, it wasn't. Comintern agents had been funneling money and specialists to help prepare the KBD, but by late October, they had fewer than a thousand rifles available in the East German KBD heartlands. Matyash Rakoshi, the future Hungarian Stalinist I mentioned earlier, was still working with the KPD and reported back on the bad news. Turns out all the boasting the German communists had done the month previous, while in Moscow, was a lot of hot air. And while support for the KPD had been on the rise, the majority of the proletariat was still with the SPD, and that party wasn't about to be taken for a ride by the communists. The result was the KPD leadership calling off the planned uprising, with the Hamburg branch declining to take no for an answer and launching an uprising anyway. And of course, they were savagely repressed. The result was less physically destructive than it could have been, but it was utterly humiliating. The common turn in Soviet leadership had been planning the venture for months, and everybody was hyped up. But the reality on the ground was that such an uprising was impossible, which shattered the hopes for some kind of breakout from their isolated bastion. The Comintern wings were firmly clipped when it came to actually seizing power outside the USSR, and even Zinoviev was forced to slink back to the United Front strategy. The new attempt to get more, the more moderate socialist leadership to fall into line never actually worked out. The failures also discredited Zinoviev, and the whole reason that Bush League Estonian operation went ahead was because he was drawing at straws by the end of 1924. That operation was to prove one of his last major plays, as by 
early 1925, Stalin was looking to get rid of his er erstwhile ally, which I'll go into more detail on that in about six weeks. And speak of the devil, Stalin began to take a much more active interest in the common turn in early 1925, which pretty much spelled the end of Zinoviev's influence. Stalin could command the entire Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which meant that he could dictate common turn policy as well. And the First Order business was shaking up the composition of party leaderships outside the USSR. Zinoviev had managed to get international communists aligned with him installed in their respective parties over the years, but over 1925, Stalin reversed that course and put his own people in leadership positions. Suddenly, all over Europe, new faces started popping up. Especially conspicuous were the increasing condemnations of Trotsky, who was well on his way out back in the USSR. While Zinoviev had considered the common turn his domain, it was oftentimes Trotsky that excited the passions of communists abroad. After all, it had been he who had won the Civil War, and notably during the plans for the 1923 KPD uprising, the Germans had asked for Trotsky to come lead them personally. His international profile was a probable reason why Stalin became more involved in the common turn, probably knowing that he'd have to root out support for his rival in all corners of the globe. Stalin's own leadership would not fare much better, though, with the Great Strike in the UK and Chiang Kai-shek's Purge of the Communists all happening under his watch. The Great Strike was less of an issue because the USSR wasn't directly involved and was kept offering some minor aid and moral support, which, of course, the Tory government in the UK used to discredit the strike. Chang's purge was way more serious, and I'll be covering the political implications of that disaster in the upcoming episodes on Stalin's rise to power. Suffice to say, the almost complete loss of the Communist Party of China didn't reflect well on Stalin's leadership. But unlike Zinoviev, Stalin wasn't going to go away. Not that the Comintern was going to be known as the spearhead of communist coups for much longer, though. The period under Stalin's guidance was going to be one where the Comintern was more tightly linked with Soviet policy than ever before. And Soviet policy just so happened to be all about identifying and eliminating anybody who made Stalin the least bit nervous. The period from 1928 onward was going to be one of consolidation, with communist parties isolating themselves, all the while purifying their respective leaderships to be wholly subservient to Stalin. Favored targets became the moderate left, and the United Front strategy would turn vicious. So, look forward to that next season. And I'm stopping just in time because I am getting a little tired of this terrible dirge of failure on the common turns part. It was feared as an international cabal against the entire world, but given their effectiveness in the 20s, that description is really too generous. Less of a disappointment, though, would be the Soviet Union's secret police. I covered the early activities of the Cheka in episode 96, and while it went through some name changes, first to the GPU and then the OGPU, it would continue acting as the shield of the party all through the 20s and like the common turn, would come under the influence of Stalin by the end of the decade, as practically every other Soviet institution did. And that's where I'll pick up next week, so join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.